Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Hello, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey from the Wealth Formula Podcast. And uh, today I've got an interesting interview uh, with a guy by the name of Jorge Newberry, uh, the American Preservation American Homeowner Preservation uh, Organization. So I met Jorge at our recent uh, meetup uh, over in the North Shore of Chicago. Uh, by the way, if you're interested in ever meeting us in person, uh, go to meetup.com and go to the uh, North Shore uh, Private Investor Group. Anyway, Jorge's a, a really interesting guy with an interesting story. Um, he started up this company uh, that is essentially a, a type of hedge fund that deals with um, uh, essentially buying mortgages from struggling companies and uh, or struggling uh, homeowners and uh, helps them stay in their house and uh, also helps to make some money along the way. Sounds like a good investment. Uh, the minimum uh, contribution is not significant, so it might certainly might be worth looking into. Um, and the returns are are pretty darn solid. So, uh, without further ado, here's my interview with Jorge Newberry. So I have with me today Jorge Newberry from American Homeowner Preservation, and you are the founder and CEO of this organization. Um, Jorge, why don't you tell me a little bit about, tell us all about uh, what what exactly this uh, organization is. We create a series of closed-end funds which purchase pools of defaulted mortgages from banks. We'll buy from Citibank, GMAC, Aurora, other types of banks such as that. And once we acquire the loans, we'll go to the families, the borrowers, whose loans we now own, and we'll offer them solutions to stay in their homes if they want to stay. They'll get a modification because we bought the loan at a big discount from the banks. We can offer transformative uh, solutions. Let's say someone owes $100,000 and the home is only worth fifty. We can often, um, we probably bought that loan at $20,000. So we can discount principal, drop the payment, and offer very attractive terms, which will, in many cases, enable the families to stay in their homes. But if they don't want to stay, 
but let's say the home is already vacant, then we offer a cash incentive to cooperate with a deed in lieu or short sale in order to avoid the foreclosure process. And then ultimately there are some who ignore us completely and we do end up foreclosing. But that's the goal is to both deliver a social return, have a positive social impact, and also generate strong financial returns. That's great. Now, you guys didn't always start. It, it, I was just looking at your website, which is AmericanHomeownerPreservation.com, and it sounds like you actually started from a uh, from a nonprofit uh, perspective. Can you tell us about, about that? Yes, we started in 2008. We were originally a, a 501c3 nonprofit, uh, and our mission was to keep families in their homes. And what we would do is families would come to us, and they had a loan with Citibank, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, whoever the bank was. And we would go one by one to their lender and try to make try to achieve a resolution. And repeatedly, the banks would deny the resolution. And instead of um, instead of doing instead of keeping the family in their home, they proceed to foreclose. And we would track these. And and many a times, the bank would ultimately sell the property for less than what we could have delivered them and kept the family in their home. You know, if the, if the, let's say, you know, using the same example, they owed a hundred, the house is worth 50. You know, we may have offered the bank 45 or $40,000. And instead the bank chose to spend four or four or $5,000 to foreclose, take another year, kick the family out. Home becomes vacant, sometimes gets vandalized. And then they would sell it for 35 or 30. And uh, it was it, this would just happen over and over. So we, we thought, hey, the only way this is going to work is if we take the banks out of the equation, if we actually buy their positions. And on a one off basis, there was very little reception from banks. I mean, we had success maybe one in 10 times. But when you go to the banks and say, I'll buy your defaulted mortgages and they'll give you a pool of 100 or 200 or 1000, then they'll they're prepared to take those discounts that are needed to move those loans. One big change was though, initially we had families coming to us and we would go to the banks and try to work on their loans. Now the banks come to us and give us a hundred loans whose homeowners, whose borrowers we have no contact with and we're not even allowed to have contact with until we acquire the loan. So that's, we, we really have very limited insight into what the family's intentions are until we actually acquire the loan. So, I guess initially uh, you weren't really looking for large sums of money. You were actually acting more as uh, sort of an intermediary uh, for these families with the bank. Is that right? That's that's I'm more or less right. We actually had had proposed a municipal uh, bond financing to acquire the more to acquire the homes and allow the families to stay. That was the original plan. So we would go through banks on a short sale, acquire the homes. And then the nonprofit would own the home, allow the families to stay at a discounted rate, and then eventually allow the families to repurchase the home. That was the original plan. And we actually had an, uh, an inducement from Summit County, uh, which is the Akron area of Ohio. Uh, they induced us for roughly $13 million worth of bonds to do this. But because the banks, despite the fact that we had capacity to raise the money through tax-exempt um, bonds, they're really – the banks were not um, not receptive, and we we couldn't find a way to uh, to really make it work under that structure. So we weren't raising an investor funds; it was all uh, bonds at that time was the plan. But once we so what happened though is that although the banks 
rejected us the majority of the times. So there were a few that they approved, and although it was nowhere near the $13 million that we had proposed for bonds, we did have some homeowners where the bank said, okay, we'll, take a di- we'll make a deal. And so now we had several of these, not very many, but we had several of these, and we started thinking, well, well now we have some approved. We can't do the big bond issue we, we anticipated, so what do we do with these families? And we were looking for financing for nonprofits, and this was late 2008, early 2009, when the financial markets were in crisis, and to get financing for a nonprofit was extraordinarily challenging. So I remember we had a conference call with some investors and, and private investors, and we said, uh, you know, we're looking to get financing, and some of them were interested. Maybe we'll do mortgages, but they were in California, and, and this was in Ohio, and they weren't licensed to do loans in Ohio. So there was a lot of uh, challenges as we explored that. And then one of the investors said, well, heck, I'll, I'll just buy the house. Let me just buy this house, and I'll let the family stay, and I'll lease it. And you know, when they're ready to buy it back, they can buy it back. And, and we predetermined the purchase price. So you know, the investor bought it for 50 Then the homeowner could buy it back for, let's say, 57.5. So there was an an upside for the investor in addition to the monthly rent, but it wasn't, you know, I buy it for 50 and sell it to you at 100, which would be uh, not attractive for all parties. So we tried to make it predetermined and the returns were good. They, we did one and then we started doing several and, and actually that that worked, but we were still at the mercy of the banks in terms of approving these. The approval rate was still very modest, so it, it wasn't a, a viable model. Even And at that point, to sell these to investors, we had to convert to for-profit. And that's what we did. But we, although we were for profit, we were still really not making a profit. So it, it really, uh, it, it was doing some social good, but it wasn't a structure that really, um, really worked because we had to work on, you know, a hundred files to get ten, and you know we had staff a lot of staff hours went into those files that didn't close, so it it, it wasn't very efficient. So your initial uh, involvement was this uh, was really sort of. Uh not an, an intention to really make a lot of money. <laughs> is that right? You, you no. kind of came into, you basically as a social cause. Is that right? What's your, what's your background? I guess that's a good way to ask. So, so how, how did you even think about getting into this whole, um, you know, the, this, this area of trying to keep people in their homes? What positioned you there? Well, I had worked, uh, I've been in real estate since 1990. I was originally a, a loan officer and then I started my, I, with a partner, we started a mortgage company, which is still in existence in a um, real estate brokerage or property management company. I eventually started developing properties and I built a pretty large portfolio, about 4,000 units across the, across the country. And, but I had one complex, which was the biggest complex, which suffered, a. it was devastated by an ice storm in 2004. It was 1,100 units all in one complex on 52 acres in Columbus, Ohio. Up until then, I was on a roll. I was doing I was doing really well. I had a, a series of successful turnarounds of big troubled projects. And in fact, this project, I had a commendation from the Ohio State of, um, Ohio House of Representatives for the good work that I'd done in turning it around. It was called Uzi Alley before I bought it. And by the time I was done, it was turned into a, a very, um, I won't say desirable property, but it had stabilized and turned into something that was an asset to the community. It wasn't the the crime magnet that it was before. In late December 2004, there was an ice storm, and it created uh, severe challenges at that property. And we ended up in a battle with the insurance company and eventually the city. We we spent uh, 11 months trying to get an insurance claim, which was denied, denied, denied. And eventually, 
we went to court, we, we were able to settle. But by that time, the city had issued uh, orders, emergency vacate orders. Uh, long story short, it created a huge challenge for my portfolio. And I ended up in severe financial strain. And my response to that was, I, I should say my life somewhat changed. And, and I still have a profit motive, no question. I, I'm, I'm not going to hide that. I, I would like to make good money. And, and right now we make good money doing what we're doing. But there is also a mission to right or wrong where these families, I think, were didn't realize what they were getting into in, in lots of these cases. I mean, what happened in 2008 was so many of these families had, had rates that had, had gone up and their income was going down. And, you know, it was the, the perfect storm of, of, of um, challenges, which which created uh, all these foreclosures. And, and uh, so it seemed like an opportunity to do something good and, and, and hopefully eventually make at least some money out of it. And, and, and it's gone that path. It's evolved many, many times. You know, in, two, in 2011, when we started buying loans, yeah, we had so much success that uh, the actually the lender on the Woodland Meadows loan, uh, he, he used to work for Allstate Insurance. Allstate that's the, that's the, the one that got destroyed. Or the, that's the, the one that got destroyed. Mm-hmm. And but you know, we ended up paying back. You know, it was challenging, but we ended up paying back the lender in full. And he remembered that, and we stayed in contact. And we uh, as this. HP started growing, he thought, why don't you come to Chicago and we'll create a hedge fund to do this? And he had uh, he had more resources, I think, than I did in terms of institutional money. And so I went ahead and we moved to Chicago. We started the hedge fund and, and we had some success, although there were limitations in the hedge fund structure where we HP would get 20%. It was typically hedge fund structure. HP would get 20%. The investors would get 80%. We'd also get a 2% management fee. And the management intensive nature of what we do, it just didn't work very well. We we did very well for investors. The returns in 2012 were for over 14%, same with 2013. But we weren't doing very well. I was actually, we had done better when we were in Cincinnati, which is where we started. And there, we simply did 50-50 deals with our investors, which pretty much worked. And... Um, but the 80-20 didn't work. So now we've transitioned to a crowdfund structure where investors go online. They have to be accredited, but accredited investors go online to our website. And our website's actually ahpinvest.com. They can go online. They can invest from $10,000 on up, and they can earn returns of 9% if they, if they invest for a year, 10.2% if they invest for two years, or 12% if they invest for five years. And using those um, monies are then used to purchase specific pools of, of mortgages. Are those, and, uh, an, you're talking about annual returns? Those um, are annual returns, correct. So you get a, you get a monthly check, essentially, uh, that, uh, um, you know, that's going to add up to whatever, 12%, if you know, if, if you went for five years or whatever. It's not like a quarterly, it's not a preferred rate, blah, blah, blah. But that's that's kind of what the standard uh, return is. Correct. So basically, the revenues that come in from whether it's payments or sales of properties, all that money comes in, and then it's distributed first to the nine percent investors to pay their return, and then to the ten point two percent investors, and then to the twelve percent investors. So all the returns are paid. Whatever cash is left is then paid to return the capital to the shortest term class, which initially would be the one-year investors and they're all paid paid this extra money each month until they're paid off 
And then we go to the 10.2% investors, pay them off. And then the 12% investors pay them off. And our incentive is whatever's left at the end, that's our incentive. So our goal is to return, pay the returns to investors as soon as possible and return their capital. And once that's done, you know, there's $100,000 and less. When you say return, uh, return the uh, capital as soon as possible, what what do you mean? I mean, so if, say, for example, um, I invest, uh, you know, we're using the number $100,000 into your, into something that, uh, you know, the return is 9%. So if you're, or or, no, let's, let's use the example of the five years. Okay. So you said like 12%, right? So what good does it do to return something faster. I'm confused about that because if you're in for five years, don't you just keep getting your 12% for five years and then get your principal back? Or what exactly, how would that work for a five-year investor? So the structure, it's a maximum of five years, but our goal is to pay you back sooner. And it won't be one lump sum payment in all likelihood. You're probably, let's say the nine percenters, or let's say the 12, you're using the example of the five years. I would expect sometime in the, sometime in the second or third year, We'd have paid off the the one year and the two year investors, and now whatever extra revenue there is each month will be used to pay back the the investment, not just the returns, but now actually return the investment to the twelve percent investors. We're not looking to if we get money back, we can't reinvest it. So if it sits in a bank account earning you know next to nothing, no good. And we don't want it. We really want to pay it back to the investors and then and make sure everyone gets their, their return and their money back. So that, so that five-year investment, there's a good chance it may be back sometime in the fourth year or even in some cases, depending on the velocity of how, these, how fast these loans turn, could be in the third year. Okay, so – so essentially what you're doing is you're if we if we use the example of the five years again and I'm just trying to meet uh, you know sure. approaches as an investor uh, you say say okay I put a hundred thousand dollars in starting from month one or month two or whatever you know the the first month I start getting a you know a um, a return as annualized at twelve percent. Uh, along with that, uh, at, at, I will be starting to get some principal back or um, at some point when you guys have the money, say it's three years, I'm going along, I'm getting 12% every month and all of a sudden I get my last 12% and then my, my principal gets returned and then we're done. Is that? Not completely. Let's say, for instance, on a $100,000 investment, 12%, $1,000 a month. So in all likelihood, you'll receive $1,000 a month for the first year thousand dollars a month for the second year then sometime in that third or fourth year you'll start getting more than a thousand dollars a month you'll start maybe receiving two thousand dollars a month or five thousand a month and the amount that's over the twelve percent is a return of your capital and that's paid until you're paid off and and let's use let's just use a round number at the end of three years your hundred thousand dollar investment is now eighty thousand dollars because you've received twenty thousand dollars return on your of your capital and that is so now your pay your monthly payment has dropped from a thousand dollars a month because it's it's uh twelve percent on whatever is outstanding to eight hundred dollars a month because you've already received twenty twenty thousand back so that that's where our goal is to return your money because the money is a cost and an expense so the sooner we pay it back the better right so um, okay, well that makes sense. So a couple a couple questions here. So where where are you targeting? Is there geographically is all all throughout the country? Is it um, you know 
I noticed uh, you had something uh, uh, on your website currently about Brooklyn or something like that. Yes, we have a. We just closed our our first big pool that was used using the crowdfunding structure, and the new pool has a lot of Brooklyn. The, the biggest concentration of loans is in the uh, is in Brooklyn, New York, and. The these all came from Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers was the biggest bankruptcy in U.S. history in 2008, and that bankruptcy is still being wound down. And here's the majority of these loans are coming out of that bankruptcy. The um, and the majority happen to be in Brooklyn, New York, but they're scattered all over the country. There's one out here in Lockport, Illinois. Uh, there's um, there's a couple others in, in Illinois, but a big concentration in New York and. Uh, Notably, many of these loans severely underwater. They owe um, considerably more than, in most cases than what their houses are worth. Many of them haven't paid in years. And and what we find is you, you look at someone, I haven't paid in three years. You know, why would these people just don't want to pay? But then you contact the family and say, no, no, I was trying to pay. The bank wouldn't take my money. Or I was trying to do a mod. They took two years of my paperwork. They kept losing it. And it seems... It seems preposterous that how could the, how could these have gone on so long with a family trying to make a deal to stay in their home and, and the bank just not doing it? But the reality is that's happening repeatedly and, and on, a, on a massive scale. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of uh, people seem to think these types of things are kind of um, going away, right? I mean, it's, huh. it's 2000 and it's almost 2014 as of today, and uh, we don't hear very much about it, but it sounds like there um is there is there a way, another wave coming is uh some of these uh, arms that were done is is that what's going on or what's uh is it just as rampant as it was two years ago or i wouldn't say that it's as rampant as two years ago but it's still a much bigger problem than i think most people are aware of it's 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 no longer on the headlines it used to be on the news all the time and you know on cnn and and in the headlines right now it's kind of an old story but just because it's old news the problem hasn't gone away. In the last year, there's been some appreciation. There's no question around the country, but the appreciation has somewhat been been geographically um, inconsist, um, inconsistent, and also the the higher value homes and the the, the middle income homes. Those those homes have definitely seen a, a a boost in their pricing. But then you go, for instance, South Side is sold for fifteen thousand dollars a year ago. You foreclose on the same home on the same street. It's still fifteen thousand dollars. There's very little, uh, no appreciation there, and and the problem is still of such a titanic proportion. There's five hundred sixty-six billion dollars of underwater mortgages in this country. So that's a, I don't know how many mortgages that is, but that's the. It's going to take, I'd say, at least another five years to work through just the problems that we already have. And then you know the economy is still sluggish in 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 most sectors, and I think that. You know, families, if inflation adjusted, are making less than they were five years ago, less than they were ten years ago, and I don't until that problem changes. I think there's going to be this problem is going to continue, and and to wit, there's been we've started seeing some situations where we'll buy a loan that was originated in 2012, and you say, hey, it's 2013. This is a brand new loan. How to go bad, and 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 we're buying it at 50 cents on the dollar, and so that certainly. That's not going away, and I think time passes, people get laid off, wages get reduced, and that continues to happen. And some of those 2011, 2012 loans will continue to go bad, probably not at the rate of 2008 vintage loans, but 
but nevertheless, this country's economy needs to turn around. And and not to ignore the fact that there there have been signs of of some recovery, but most families, I think the majority of families in this country would say they're no better off today than they were a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. Sure. What's the uh, what's the implications of a, of an appreciating market to your business model? People ask that all the time. It's a good question. Um, but the, an appreciating market will result in us paying a, a higher higher prices for the loans. And what we pay is usually is always based on the value of the loan. So I'm sorry, the value of the home that's security for the loan. So if a home is currently worth two hundred thousand and we agreed to pay fifty cents on the dollar, it's fifty cents on that value. The presumption is that the loan is is higher than two hundred. So we would pay a hundred thousand dollars. Now in six months, if that house is worth two fifty, then we're paying 125. Likewise, in six months, it's worth 150. We're paying 75. But for those types of fluctuations, and and I probably use my example as a little bit too wide of a range, but let's say there's a 10 or 15% range. To the extent those there's those fluctuations, whatever inventory we have, whatever loans have now turned into deeds in lieu or REOs, and we're now selling that inventory, if we're selling it, the market's appreciated, we're selling it at, at a at a higher price than we anticipated. If it's dropped, we're selling it at a lower price. But since we buy them typically around 50 cents of current value, there's there's some pretty good insulation. Even the market drops, you know, 10-20%, uh, then we're okay. If it goes up 10-20%, then then we're in good shape. Right. So just to uh, also just to out of curiosity, now in terms of buying these kinds of mortgages, somebody can't. I can't go off off the street and go to a bank and say, hey, uh, do you have any mortgages you want to sell? I can't do that, right? You can't. And it's a very opaque business. When we started saying, hey, we want to buy loans, we started calling people. And we really had very little success initially. And it's it's a very, unfortunately, it's kind of like an exclusive, I don't want to say exclusive club, but there's not, it's not easy to break into. We ended up finally buying, hiring a consultant who had just been laid off from one of the biggest servicers in the country. And um, he was the CEO there. And, and I contacted him. I saw a news article that he was laid off. I contacted him and said, hey, I need to get introduced to some of these funds and and, per- and um, sellers of, of mortgages. So he agreed to help us out and introduced. I flew to New York. We met a bunch of people, had some conference calls. And I have to say, most of those calls, you know, I met with some of the biggest companies banks in the country. And even so, most of those introductions went nowhere. But there was one who ended up selling us a small amount of loans and then a, a larger amount of loans. And all this, over time, we became a buyer. And now people actually call us and say, hey, we know you buy these these loans and here's what I have. And they could be selling one loan or 100 loans. Uh, but it is very difficult to for an individual investor, or actually even a, a company to say, I want to do this and, and break into it. Once you break into it, there's a there's a pretty ample supply of loans available. One of the one of the things I always look uh, or ever consider loan is to find out out of your team. I guess how much um, how much skin in the game do you guys have yourselves? We don't put much skin in the game at all. We we our our documents require that we put in ten thousand dollars on every pool. I'll tell you the pool we closed on the last that we just closed this week was about four point six million. We put in about five percent, so about two hundred thirty thousand. So I guess that's not a little amount, no, but it's something. still yeah, it's something. Then we'll do the work, and basically we 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 get paid at the end. So we want to get our investors paid off, and they get paid back at the end. 
Just for clarification too, Jorge, one of the um, nomenclature here, you mentioned the word crowdfunding. Now, that has uh, some um, some specific meanings as of the, the recent Job Act. Um, you know, the, the, but we're not really talking about the crowdfunding uh, that limits people to $2,000 per year, limits them to, you know, 2% of their income. You're talking about old-fashioned you know, fund investing, correct? Yes, this is fund investing. I, I guess when we use crowdfunding, it's when we had a hedge fund, the minimum investment was $250,000. Right. Today, we take a minimum investment of 10000 So that's a drastic difference. And, you know, it has some cost to it, accounting costs and, and some extra legal costs. But it still allows us to, I think, reach a much larger audience. One constraint is that our... We're still limited to accredited investors. Now, an accredited investor can invest in an un unlimited amount of money in our fund. What I think you're referring to is there's proposals that sometime in 2014, unaccredited investors could, could participate in crowdfunding for, um, of startups, real estate, our, um, our model. They could participate, but they'll be limited to, I think, somewhat what you stated, maybe 10% of their income. There's multiple restrictions, but let's call it 10% of their income. So they make 100000 a year. They could then invest up to $10,000 a year in aggregate in these types of uh, investments. And there's been a lot of talk in the industry, hey, is that going to be worthwhile? Because there'll be more restrictions, more um, – we have to already – right now we have to verify that investors are credited. And in this case, with the um, using the undercredit, there's even more verifications and 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 uh, checks well, that are required. Right. I mean, one of the one of the big things, that, and I've I've mentioned it on on my show before, is that you know these private offerings have good good and bad about them. The the good thing, and I, I'm a big proponent and jet in general because I think generally you're going to find better returns here than you are, um, you know, in, in uh, for example, in the stock market. But filing with the SEC and going through all of that rigmarole is extremely expensive. And so generally speaking, um, that's going to cut into returns of investors. And um, so that's one of the things I was asking about because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of talk out there right now about, you know, with the, with the current Obama uh, Jobs Act about, quote, unquote, and they're using the words crowdfunding. And the crowdfunding is being described, I think, uh, you know, for people who have a net worth of less, uh, you know, less than the usual million dollars. And um, uh, I think, uh, you know, they, they limit it to $2,000 or 2% is what I, I think that's what I, re I remember what it is. The other the other issue is that you have to use various types of specific platforms that have been approved by the SEC to raise money. And obviously, you're not doing that because you have your own platform. But um, but so so anyway, this is we talk about accredited investors once again, uh, just as a reminder, that means that you have a net worth of either a million dollars or uh, if you're filing jointly, you make three hundred thousand dollars a year. Or if you're filing alone, it's two hundred uh, two hundred or two hundred and fifty. Is it two hundred? Uh, Jorge? It's uh, it's single is two hundred. Couple right. is is, is three hundred. Right. But the good thing is, on the other hand, that even though uh, you're making that money, you it sounds like you're only having to invest uh, ten thousand dollars. So, um, so it's not a terrible way to at least uh, test this kind of market. And uh, it is sort of, you know, I, the thing I generally like about real estate and what what I 
The reason I'm in real estate is because it's, you know, it's backed by brick and mortar. And this is effectively backed by brick and mortar, right? I mean, you've got notes in the way, but you've got the first uh, first lien to the brick and mortar. That's correct. So ultimately, we the ultimate security is the real estate. I mean, if everyone didn't pay, ultimately we get the real estate. It may take some time. Foreclosure courts are still, in many cases, slow and backed up. But there is ultimately we would get the property and that that's the collateral for these investments. And who do, who do you sell that stuff to? How, you, how are you selling that? I might be interested in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. We 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 end up um. There's a good percentage of the homes that the families don't want to keep. They'll give us the deed in lieu. They will foreclose, and those we typically just list with a local agent and then put it on the market and, and sell it. A local buyer is usually the best the best number for it, but. You know, we can certainly keep you um, to let us know what you're looking for, and we'll we'll uh, we'll keep you rest as they uh, as they become available. Because we do. I mean, right now we have more than 100 REOs across the country. It's a decent volume. That's good. So, you know, I guess um, the other thing I was I was sort of curious about, which is a little different from your fund, is you kind of have these sort of fairly fixed numbers, right? I mean, nine. Uh, when, and I can't remember. It was it one year for nine percent, two years for ten something, and then three years for or five years for twelve, uh, right. something something along that lines. But how do you um, generally? You know, I have a I'm a partner in a fund myself, and um, we usually talk about preferred rates because we can't necessarily guarantee, um, or you know. Yeah, you know, we can't really guarantee that we're going to make eight percent. But the first, we're, we're not going to pay ourselves until we we generate at least eight percent for a fund. How how do you? Because you, you're not calling it a preferred rate. You're talking about this is this is what you're going to get, right? That's where you're going to get. It is a, it is. We do actually call it a preferred rate, but that's it. There is no additional like sharing of of the back end or anything like that. Our experience. We've been doing this now three three years. Is that we can generate 20% gross or, or a little bit better, somewhere in the in the in the low 20s, and but that's gross before paying. You know, we have uh, more than a dozen employees. We have uh, we have a decent overhead, and, and there's a fair amount of cost in doing this, um, in executing this strategy. So our ability to pay, you know, investors, you know, a blended rate it, it, between the three, it ends up being roughly 11, you know, 10 and a half, 11 percent. There's more people in into the twelve percent. We do that to give us some flexibility on the um, on the duration in case for whatever reason these were to take longer to to pay off. Um, but there's there's enough room to pay all that. It's not a you know it's not a stock play where you know a typical hedge fund that eighty twenty works because you have a bet of of ten million dollars. If your bet you make it ten times larger, you make it a hundred million dollars. There's not too much extra work in making the bet larger. Here, if we buy $10 million worth of loans, that could be, you know, 500 loans. If we buy $100 million, that's going to be 5,000 loans, and, and that's 10 times as much work. So I think that's a big difference in why it didn't work that well. It well, worked out well for investors, but didn't work out that well for us as a, a kind of standard hedge fund. And I could see some real estate groups, you know, they'll do larger commercial projects. You know, they do a hotel, a, you know, a $20 million real estate project, $10 million real estate project, but it's all one project. I think there's some efficiencies which we just can't get to because our you know we have so many assets and they're geographically and and uh, they're not there's not a concentration typically. Right, right. Um, so a uh, couple other questions. So you uh, obviously you can in, you know invest uh, with your uh, with an IRA. We had uh, Dennis Blitz from the IRA Club on um, a couple a couple weeks ago, and it sounds like this is something that you could easily use your IRA. It might be a nice play. 
Is that uh, is there any re- any reason you can't? No, absolutely. A self-directed IRA is very welcome, and we have we have several investors that utilize their their IRAs right now. You know, the, the caveat is that Fidelity, Morgan Stanley, just as with real estate, many of the the big custodians won't allow you to to do alternative investments such as our fund, real estate, you know, some of the other um, options besides the stock market or or money funds. There's uh, so yes, definitely four hundred one ks also are are more than welcome. Uh, in addition to IRAs as well. Well, I, the whole model sounds really, uh, really great, and it's um, you know it's it's a little different. I think it's uh, definitely something I think people should look into. Now, what is there is there any uh, so what uh, any specific uh, tax implications to this type of investing? I mean, uh, is it just straight up? Is it just like getting passive income from uh, stocks? Uh, or is it, uh, or is there something special about it? I, I'm just wondering if there's any uh, tax benefit because you're actually helping somebody out. No, I wish there were, but it's not. You'll be taxed just like any other. Uh, the, the, you'll get, you'll receive a K-1 at the end of the year. It'll mostly be ordinary income. There could be some capital gains in there, um, but it'll it'll total the amount of of whatever you receive uh, in gains from the prior year. Got it. Well, uh, very, uh, very cool, Jorge. It's a uh, sort of a socially responsible way to uh, make money, which I think we're seeing a little bit more of, which is, um, which is, uh, which is neat. And the minimum investment is not significant. So it certainly sounds like something that people should at least consider. If people want to uh, get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, one of two ways: they can uh, call eight hundred five 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 ten fifty five. They can email. Uh, Info, I-N-F-O, at ahpinvest.com, or they can just visit our website and, and uh, learn a lot from there, www.ahpinvest.com. Great. Well, this has been, uh, this has been really interesting, and, and thanks, for, uh, thanks for coming on, Jorge. Hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk soon. All right. I appreciate you having me, Mark. All Good right. Luck Take care. Everybody. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks. Bye. That was a Wealth Formula podcast interview with uh, Jorge Newberry of American Home Owner Preservation. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Um, just remember, I you know I don't really advocate for any particular investments. I just want to let everybody know what's out there. I think it's a neat idea. Um, currently, I'm not an investor, and I don't have anything financially to gain from their funds. So anyway. Uh, I hope uh, hope you enjoyed it, and I look forward to speaking to you next time. Make sure to visit the blog at wealthformula.com. Lots of good stuff there, and, um, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.